Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Today with episode 620 of the Survival Podcast. Of course, I'm actually up in Hot Springs trying to set up our uh, our new home and our new office up there so that uh, we can get this to be Jack Spierko coming to you from Hot Springs, Arkansas instead of Arlington, Texas. Uh, we're trying to get that done by the end of the month, but I am away. But, you know, all this week, all these shows were pre-cut to make sure you guys didn't miss a beat while I was gone. And we're going to do that all the way through Monday of next week. And this is the first of four interviews coming up for you. Uh, the rest of this week will be interviews, and uh, Monday next week will be interviews. Today we have Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. Awesome guy. We've got a lot of really cool stuff to talk about. What do you hear how you can stay armed when you're an airline passenger? Awesome, awesome stuff from Frank uh, you'll be hearing in just a second. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item number one, as always, uh, let's take care of those sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you, make sure the show is here for you five days a week, including even when I'm not. I leave one behind for you like today. Sponsor of the day number one today is MERS-radio.com. That's M-U-R-S, a dash, and then the word radio, and a dot and a com. Uh, MERS Radio is awesome because it allows you to combine secondary communications and security on your property into a single product. So not only can I communicate with uh, Dorothy if I'm out working at toward the uh, the back of the property in Arkansas, I'll also know if somebody's pulling in my driveway, uh, or I know if someone's snooping around the porch at night because it'll come across our base station and tell us Alert Zone 1 or Alert Zone 2. Could even use it with an earpiece and put it along a game trail uh, for you hunters. There's a lot of flexibility there, limited only by your imagination. So check out MERS-radio.com. Remember, best way to find all our sponsors at the survivalpodcast.com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Uh, next up today, Directive21.com. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy at Directive21.com. Water is life and life is water, and the two are not separable, at least on this planet and by any known life forms that we know, including ourselves. Having clean, safe, fresh to drink water at all times is imperative to your survival as anything else. And I also believe we need to worry about a lot of the water coming out of our, a lot of our municipal systems today. Uh, everything from just mistakes that get made to the stuff they put in the water intentionally, like chlorine and fluoride. I don't know about you, but I want that stuff out of my water. That's why I rely on Berkey Water Filtration Systems to do that from Directive21.com. Next up, remember to connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, those are our three primary social media outlets. I do a lot on Twitter and Facebook that's not on the show and not on the site. Little things people send to me that I don't have time to get on the show, little personal things, little just fun things and stuff like that. And of course, YouTube's where I publish all the video that we do uh, for to go in conjunction with the show. Gear reviews, instructional videos, you name it. We're going to try to do some stuff while we're up in Arkansas this time. It's honestly going to be tough with how much we have packed in. We're taking about half our furniture with us this time, that type of stuff. But I'll see if I can't cut one or two for you while we're up there. That way at least I can shave my beard. Those of you on Facebook know what that's all about on Twitter as well. 
Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts from 25 supporting vendors. Uh, you get uh, 20 videos that are available nowhere else. You get over $100 worth of free ebooks, and you're supporting the show at what comes out to $0.18 cents an episode, but let's call it $0.20 cents an episode. So when you get off the air, if you think, man, that's worth two dimes, consider joining the MSB if you have not already done so. And remember, if you're a forum member, you get to display that MSB member badge in your forum account. Uh, last but not least, let me remind you real quick here, we are doing a five-book challenge with Gary V. You can uh, get on a one-hour call with Gary Vanderchuk and myself independently. This is for you entrepreneurs, you business types, you guys that own your own blog, trying to make a few bucks on to those that want to build a big business and everything in between. By purchasing five copies of the Thank You Economy and emailing your receipt to Gary at VaynerMedia.com. Full details on this. You can listen to Monday's show from this week, or there is a blog post about it. There'll be a link to that post in today's show notes. And with that, uh, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of our, ta- our show today. And as I said, we are fortunate today to have with us uh, Frank Sharp, Jr., founder and owner of Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. Frank, thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're actually a sponsor of the show. You guys came on board, I guess, about a month ago, and uh, I've really appreciated having you guys support the show. But I think self-defense is a huge, uh, huge thing, and I think there's a lot of gun chatter in our forum, on the blog, shows I do about it, and people talking about guns, and a lot of stuff around the concept of what what gun do I get next and and what gun has this feature and what gun has that feature and I just don't think that there is enough uh enough talk and enough consideration put into uh to training so that's what I wanted to kind of bring you on to chat about today and okay. I mean I'd like to kind of get your input just overall on a philosophy of having professional training for the person that says, well, hell, I know how a gun works. Like my daddy taught me since I was a little kid, or maybe I was even in the military, or, or, or you know, maybe I even served as a police officer. There's a different world for the civilian, and how does training kind of address that? Uh, in, in the civilian world in the United States, it's the best training there is. Um, it's, it's far better than what you would get in the military or the police. Um, and just a minor point there, uh, police are actually civilian police in our country. A lot of times we tend to refer to them as police and the people they protect as civilians, but in reality they are still civilians. Um, But in answer to your question, I would say Americans, for some reason, like to spend money on things and think they can buy their way out of problems. And when I say that, I mean when you get on the net and you get into forums and you look at different sites... There's a lot of talk about gear, and there's a lot of arguments over calibers and brands of weapons and all this kind of stuff. And the reality is that I have to personally, our philosophy is we go with Miyamoto Musashi's uh, famous phrase from the 1300s that a true warrior has no favorite weapon. Um, we like to train in a way that, you know, says you don't maybe get the choice of what gun you have in your next gunfight. We need to know how to use all of them. We need to not be afraid to use any of them, I think is more to the point of that. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I also noticed that one of the things that you guys offer at Fortress is training that's specifically geared toward females. And I'd want to maybe have you comment a little bit on why you do that. Is it because maybe it's a little bit more of a comfort level for the student? Is it to address 
maybe a different concern, level of concern or a different, I mean, the threats are the same for all of us, but there's a perception of threat um, that I think maybe differs. And yeah, I, there's, you know, there's, there's definitely that. Um, we do a lot of uh, unarmed courses for women, and in those courses we're going to talk a lot about disparity of force, which, you know, the scientific fact of upper body strength and men being more than women and that sort of stuff. Um, but with our firearms classes, what I, I should probably back up here a bit. I've been a uh, an apprentice of a lady named Vicki Farnham for about 10 years. Uh, Vicki is probably the most well-known female firearms instructor in the world. She's written two books on teaching women to shoot is actually the, the title of one of her books. Um, she got me involved in this and, and learning about the psychology and, and everything that's involved with being productive on the range with female students. Um, as we all know, there's a difference between men and women, and um, people will have different opinions about what that is. But it, there actually is a difference in the way the male and female brain um, receives and processes information. Uh, because of that, um, when we're out on the range, a lot of times what we need to do to get a point across to a female student is explain it in a different way than we do to a male student. Um, a good example of that would be anything that involves spatial relationships. Um, whether a person believes that we've been on the planet 6,000 years or 6 million years, it doesn't really matter. That amount of time, males in our groups have been learning to take this rock or this arrow or this bullet and lob it at dinner over there. Um, it's kind of built into our DNA to understand spatial relationships and how to throw projectiles. Um, it's really not in women. Women have been back in the tent or the caves, and they've been multitasking. They've been raising children, gathering roots, stirring food, washing clothes, doing lots of things at once up close. Um, because of that, when I get out on the range with a male student and I say, okay, you're going to line the sights this way and do this, it kind of automatically clicks in with a male. And with women, we have to explain it in more of a three-dimensional way. Um, and not that that's bad or good. It's not. It's just different. Um, but if you go to an instructor who doesn't understand that, what you end up having is when you have the men and women in those classes together, you'll have men standing there who are getting really bored and women who feel like they're not allowed to ask a question because they realize everybody's getting bored. And so we kind of like to offer that as a dividing factor. And it's by choice, of course. It's not like you have a men-only course. It's a course no, for no. women that choose to take that. And before anybody jumps on Frank, like he said, he's telling you guys the way things are, not the way things he wants them to be. And we all know there is that one lady that can grab and rack the slide in, in five seconds. There's, these... there's actually about 15% of women who can do right. that. And there's actually about 15% of men that need the 3D picture of the site alignment drawn for them also. Um, it, it's just... Uh, our women's classes move not any different than the men's, other, except it's different. I, I, I can't really explain it without actually seeing it. We just we offer uh, female instructors, especially in our basic classes. Once once a woman has gone through a basic class and understands the the fundamentals of shooting, they can usually jump in with the guys no problem and, and carry right along. Um, one of the other things that we like to, to offer that for, if for no other reason, is to separate the spouses and significant others. Um, really, we find that to be the biggest problem on the range, is men really want to start competing with the women, and it's just not conducive to a good learning environment, if, if I'm you know kind of sugarcoating that a little bit. I completely agree. I think probably another thing that happens is you got men trying to instruct their women instead of take the instruction. 
And uh, that's just a pain. And, and the thing I'm going to tell you guys out there is this is perfect for the females in your lives because you're not going to teach them to shoot. It's, I mean, it, there's probably 15% you can, but I'm telling you, uh, there's you know an old proverb that the prophet has no honor in his own country. And when you tell your, your especially your spouse, and daughters are different and all, but when you tell your spouse, you're not doing that right, your head position's here, whatever, I can tell you from personal experience, the response you're going to get is, no, I'm not. <laughs> well, there, there's, there's a pre-existing condition in those relationships. Um, what I would say is you need an impartial third party. Completely agree. You know, and, and that goes for both. You know, if you have a, a, a female who's a really great shooter and she gets a, new, uh, a boyfriend or a husband or something and wants to teach him how to shoot, there's going to be the same problem. Maybe um, worse. <laughs> probably, because that, that relationship exists with things already hanging in it that get misread. So um, it, there's, there's a mechanical aspect of this with women shooters also. Um, there's just things we need to understand as instructors. Um, when I get women out to a rifle class, um, you know, how many men are going to be considerate of the fact that sometimes women have an adjustable buckle on their bra strap that the shoulder stock's hitting in recoil? You know, we need to watch for these types of just basic things that we don't have problems with as men out on the range. Um, women have a completely different superstructure than we do. The entire industry is geared towards mid to large males. And when we try to find holsters and gear and everything for women shooters, um, we run into problems. And we have to know how to work around that and work around those issues. And I'd like to think that we've spent enough time studying this that we have the answers to those problems. Very cool. I think another thing I wanted to ask you about is you look at uh, look at your course schedule. You've got kind of like with handguns, and it seems like a lot of uh, instructor services do the same thing. I kind of an introductory course and then kind of an advanced one and two. And I think there's a lot of people out there that maybe look at that introductory course and think, well, I've got my concealed carry permit, and I took whatever course I needed to get that, and uh, so maybe I don't need that. I still think they could probably learn a lot from that type of course if they've never taken one before. And I can't speak for anybody else's state. I can only speak for this state where I've taken a training course so you can get a concealed carry. And basically what I saw here was they want to make sure you're not going to shoot somebody else, shoot yourself in the foot, you can identify a threat and hit a target from seven feet. And that, and it's designed to get you through it as quickly as possible and to make sure you pass. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that gets left out. Uh, what say you on that? Uh, basically everything gets left out. Um, when, <laughs> when you have people that know little about guns designing the laws, um, we end up with things like this. Um, personally, I'm a Second Amendment purist. Um, I'm not a big fan of permits or mandatory training or anything like that. And I, I say that as somebody who, if that was mandatory in my state, would make money from it. Um, but I don't want it to be. Uh, you have to design a course that a 21-year-old male and a 70-year-old woman can all pass. Otherwise, it's discriminatory. So you're going to go to the lowest common denominator with those types of training courses. Now, that doesn't mean, as you said, that there's something you can't learn from them. Uh, any training like that is better than no training. I'm, I'm certainly going to agree with that. Uh, in our course or, you know, any basically any of those basic courses from any of the great schools in this country, you're going to have uh, things interjected into that that maybe people aren't thinking about. You're going to have movement. You're going to have stoppage reduction, which, you know, if the gun fails to fire or not work, we're going to teach you how to fix that. The reloads, um, 
what else? Uh, in, in my class, we, we start working on moving targets by the end of the first day. Um, we use what are called a rotator brand of target, and it's like a steel target with paddles on it that actually moves, and the more you shoot at it, the faster it goes. So it, it challenges you at every point. Um, there, uh, a lot of the philosophies, a lot of the um, legalities and things that you get in some of these other classes aren't quite as um, comprehensive as, say, you would get from us or going to Gunsight or Frontsight or any of the other schools. Because you're more worried about keeping the person alive than uh, exactly. worrying about they know the left of the law. We're, right. We're teaching them how to fight with a gun, um, not just how not to hurt yourself with one. And, and that's the difference. And I tell you, I think that one of the big things, and I kind of want you to springboard off of this and tell me some of the other things that people make mistakes of with their training is, I think way too many people, the, the big mistake is shooting only at stationary targets. And I understand, like, there's a range I go to here locally. When I go up to Arkansas and to my place there, I can, I can do whatever the hell I want within the bounds of safety and sanity. But, like, the range that I go to pay to shoot at here, I can't shoot at a moving target. I can't move. I can't. I can't holster the gun and draw the gun. I can't double tap. I, I can't, you know. So I understand there's places people that can't, but I think there's a lot of people that can. They never shoot at a moving target. And to me, if you're if you're ever in a lethal force on uh, force engagement, the other person's not going to just stand there like a little black silhouette with his arms down at his side and wait for you to slowly take aim and, and pull the trigger. There's a place for that to learn and become familiar with the weapon and learn the sight and all, but. You've got to make the training more realistic. And, you know, what things do you maybe see people doing in their personal training? Uh, in, in, you know, your thoughts on what I've just said and other things that make the training just not realistic at all, not not situational to, to the real world. Well, it's I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, when we go to the indoor range and... Most indoor ranges are like this. You're going to take your gun bag, you're going to set it on a table, you're going to take your pistol out, you're going to put your little paper target out and run it as far out as they'll let you do it, and you'll load your gun when you're ready to load it, and you'll fire it when you're ready to fire it, and that little piece of paper is going to stand there and let you shoot at it. Um, this is an exercise in marksmanship. It's not an exercise in fight training. Um, and marksmanship is good, like you said. We, we need to know how to do all that. Um, but for those who can't do this at a range, uh, one of the courses we offer and, and other people do as well is just simple force-on-force force or scenario-based training where we'll use ammunitions or airsoft guns. And that's when you're really going to start to see how quickly these things develop and how your decision-making comes into play and how really fast and fluid a fight is. Everything is moving in a fight. Absolutely everything. Even if you're standing still, you're breathing in your heart, have your body moving. Your sights are going to be moving. Your body's going to be shaking. Everything moves, and you need to learn how to work around that. Yeah, I, I kind of actually want to talk a little bit because we had chatted about something that I've had a lot of firearms instructors not be hip on, and it turns out you see the uh, the value in this, and that's some level of airsoft training because the movement, the muscle memory, and let's face it, it, you, it it's not a lethal situation if somebody screws up. I did some training with a gentleman named Valerie Asnoff, who I put together some martial arts products with, and this guy was uh, uh, a member of the KGB. Uh, prior to the breakup of the Soviet Union, now actually is in uh, Dubai uh, providing consulting to the security uh, forces for the Royal Guard. 
And one of the things he did with training with the airsoft stuff was you've got a guy down range that you're engaging, but he's standing kind of off to the side between the two of you, and he's pitching tennis balls at us uh, like Nolan Ryan. So you're basically dodging the tennis ball and then re-engaging the target. It made you move your body in ways that I don't even think you knew you could. Because when somebody shoots a, an airsoft shot at you, you know it's not really going to hurt, and you don't really see it. Right, so I think you can be a lot braver in an airsoft battle. When you see a tennis ball cruising at your face, uh, and this Russian dude's pitching them at you at about 60, uh, it engages things and it makes you move, and then the heart rate goes up. And you know, I, I imagine you see a lot of value in getting that training more realistic instead of you know standing in a spot and maybe walking sideways as you shoot. Oh, absolutely. Um, with that. It's the decision making that comes into this also. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that are right now buying firearms and stuff because they see some sort of, um, disruption in normal life in our future. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with that. We live in interesting times. But day to day here, we're still worried about the home invasion. We're still worried about being attacked in the parking lot. And those types of things all require a serious amount of uh, just investment in time and learning when you can and can't shoot and learning how to deal with these things as they develop. You don't get that just going to the range and shooting a paper. You have to actually work against other human beings. That's that's when you're, you're really going to get pushed to your limit and realize, wow, I need to work on this, that, or the other thing. What kind of role do you see airsoft filling in there? I mean, would you recommend? Because, again, I know a lot of people that just, they don't have access to a range where they can move around. I I find it um, almost, well, our our training school, I started looking at this about a year ago as as a chair with four legs. The first leg is going to be the mechanical, which is going to be your marksmanship and, and all the stuff that you learn in a pistol one class where you're moving, reloading, all your gear and equipment, everything like that. The second level is going to be medical. We're going to teach you how to treat gunshot wounds because it does you no good to hit your target and then bleed to death out on the sidewalk. Okay, you, you need to know how that you're probably going to get hit, punched, or cut during this fight, and you need to know how to treat it. The third is going to be the legal. On that side of it, we need to know when we can and can't shoot um, and how to deal inside our legal system once this shooting occurs because it does us no good to hit our target fix our wounds, and then get our sleeve caught in the legal system and go to jail for 10 years because we said the wrong thing. The fourth leg of this stool is the force-on-force training, and basically that's airsoft. Um, I think that brings the other three things together. We can create scenarios uh, for the students to figure out how and when they should be doing all this, and it really... It, it just really draws the whole thing to a conclusion where you say, all right, now I start to get this. Um, other, otherwise, everything else is just its fictional in your brain until you start running against real human beings. I completely agree. Let's, let's chat a little bit about the medical stuff, too, then, because I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, one of the things I learned working with, with, the, with the Russians on uh, knife disarms is, and what, what Val would tell me is, look, if, if, if a guy comes at me with a knife, I'm going to do this stuff, and I'm, I'm probably not going to get cut because I've been doing this since I was, you know, basically 14 years old. I still could get cut, but I'm probably not going to. If you do this, if you do exactly the way you're trained, it's probably going to work, but you're probably going to get cut up. 
And and you got to understand that you know it, at this point it's about survival, not avoiding any injury whatsoever. So I think you're you're right on the medical. So what type of training do you guys offer for uh, the medical aspect of things? Our tactical medical course, we have a, an, an instructor who lives in Virginia. He's actually an emergency room surgeon, and then we have two EMTs who are on our, our uh, instructor list. And uh, our instructor in Virginia, his nickname is Doc Dunn. He's rather famous on the Internet. Um, he runs his own school, and he uh, also is an instructor for John Farnham. Um, Doc uh, has passed this on to me and a number of other DTI instructors. Uh, to, with his blessing, and we, we bring him in to do courses also. But what we're after in this is being able to stabilize a person from that three to 20 minutes that it takes you to get to real medical care. We don't teach you how to be a surgeon. We don't teach you how to insert chest tubes, none of that. We treat with breathing. We clear the airway. We plug holes, and we put Israeli battle dressings on people, and we get you know wound stabilized. And then the third thing we teach you to do is to treat attention pneumothorax, which is very it, it's not a hundred percent only caused by gunshot wounds but it's a very common thing with gunshot wounds and very uncommon with anything else so that's one of the things that we added into that course to tell people what that is because there, there are there are four leading causes of death in the field and attention hemothorax is one of those four and it's i think largely misunderstood by a lot of folks a lot of people have no idea what you're talking about so you want to explain that well it's it's unique to a chest wound and you get a deflated lung, and what happens is the, the space between the lung and the inside of the chest cavity is actually called the interpleural space, and that usually has no air in it. And when the lung collapses, we end up with a hole in the chest that's larger than what you're breathing through. So as the chest starts to pump and compress because the other side is still working, um, you're going to start drawing air through that wound, and that's called a sucking chest wound. Um, a simple pneumothorax is that air building up in the chest cavity, um, which isn't necessarily lethal. A tension pneumothorax is when that pressure builds up to a point that it's pressing against the heart and the lungs on the other side of the chest and ceasing them from operating correctly. Uh, we need to get that air pressure out of there. That, that's what we're treating, and we use a 14-gauge uh, angiocast to do that. I want to throw out real quick a kind of a, a plug for one of my buddies. Uh, Brian over at ITS Tactical makes a, a, what he calls an ETA kit. And one of the things included in that kit is the uh, is the needle and the tube that you need to treat that wound. And that's not something you should run around uh, stabbing people in the chest with. But, uh, no, 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 no. We don't but it, it, it's something that we you need to have training for to be able to do. But... Uh, another side of it is, is, is Brian always recommends that you have one of these kits in your vehicle uh, and on your person because someone may be there and know what to do, but if they don't have the equipment, uh, right. they can't do it. And just like when I was in the military, we had a little first aid kit that we carried on our on our web gear. That gear was for the soldier. So that's for you. If you get hit and you go down, that was for somebody else to pull gear out of and work on you. So I think it's important that we uh, that we keep that type of gear around, even if we're not going to be the ones to use it, because we might be the one laying on the ground. And uh, I was I was a mechanic, right? So my my thing was people would come to me and go, "Well, you're a mechanic, fix my truck." Well, if I don't have tools and parts, uh, I can't lay hands on it and go run truck right so you can be a doctor and if there's certain things that are mechanically wrong with a human being without gear uh they can't they can't fix you up so i think having that gear is kind of important as well 
Yeah, the the kit that we recommend um, is very simple. It consists of an Israeli battle dressing, a nasal catheter, and the angiocath for the tension pneumothorax. Um, there's three pieces of tape wrapped around the bandage holding all that together, and we can use that t- tape to make a, uh, a a cheap version of the Asherman chest seal out of that. Um, but more to the point, the, the the medical side of this, anyone who's around guns needs to know this stuff. And as I tell my students, you are probably going to have to treat a gunshot wound long before you ever have to inflict one. Um, accidents in this country, right under 100% of gunshot wounds in America are accidents. Um, it's, it's actually really rare for somebody to take a gun, point at another person, and press the trigger on purpose. Um, in spite of what we're told by the government, I think you're dead on. Well, that's just it. We generally hear about every time that that happens. You know, that, that gets covered on the news. Um, and most of them are, are accidental. Um, I think the breakdown, I'm trying to remember how this goes, I think about 60% of them are accidental, unintentional, and another 40% are accidental on purpose, or, or not accidental on purpose, but like suicides, that sort of thing. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, your chances of coming across somebody who's got a hole in them that shouldn't be in them is, is pretty high compared to the idea that you're going to use your gun to, to defend yourself. So I think the medical side of this, um, even people who don't own guns need to know this. I, I completely agree with you. Now, kind of on the other side of that, though, one of the things I heard, I cannot remember who, who said this to me at least the first time, so I can't attribute it to the right person, and it's not mine, but I heard a trainer one time say the following, one thing you need to understand if you're going to carry a gun is in every fight or conflict you're ever in, there will be a gun involved because you brought it. Absolutely. And, and I'd like to get your thoughts on that. And he was really big on... If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, that might have been Lewis Auerbuck who said that. It may have been. I mean, I don't know where I heard it, but the, the trainer that was talking about it was really driving home the part about basically having a retention holster uh, as your carry holster. Because yeah, that way... I, um, you know, go ahead. I just wanted that, that was it. I just want to get you kind of your thoughts on that statement and and retention holsters. Well, um, we have to define retention. Um, I carry open top holsters uh, that will retain my gun. If I fall down, it's not going to fall out, but I don't have to unbuckle a strap or press a button um, because I carry from concealment. So nobody really knows my gun's there or where it's at. Uh, if you're going to carry in the open, you have to have some secondary restraining device on that gun. There's no doubt about it. Um, the struggle over a gun, if somebody's going for your gun, all you can assume is they're trying to kill you. And we really need to consider that. Um, there's a there's a big open carry movement right now. Um, whether or not anybody believes that's a good idea or not to carry doesn't even matter. If you're going to do it, we need to have retention holsters, and I, I completely agree with you. Okay, great. I also want to get your thoughts on uh, non-lethal means of defense, and I'm kind of speaking beyond um, beyond the martial uh, arts type of thing right now. Things like uh, pepper spray and things like yeah, that. Yeah, if you're if you're carrying a gun, you have to carry pepper spray. Um, I, you know, this comes back to the old thing: everybody who carries a hammer looks at every problem as a nail. Um, the gun is probably it's the gun is your trump card. It is the last thing we play. And up to that point, we're going to work on so many other things. Uh, that's that's part of our level one one instruction in our course is avoidance. Um, we're not, you know, we're going to arrange to be somewhere else if we have to. Um, one of the phrases we have is we don't go to stupid places with stupid people and do stupid things. So, 
know. Wait, no, say that again. Say that again. That's that's we, not. We a, don't go know. to we don't go to stu- stupid places with stupid people and do stupid things. Um, tonight, none of us have to get in our car, drive into the worst neighborhood we can find, and buy crack. Okay, that's that's just not something we have to do. So we're not going to do that. Um, and and easy for me to say until you find out at two in the morning when you get the phone call that one of your relatives is sitting in the emergency room in a really bad neighborhood and you still have to drive through it. So we we try to avoid and arrange to be somewhere else. Sometimes we can't. We have to go to these places. So when we do, we live what's called the stealth existence. We don't walk around with shiny things pointing out all over us because criminals are like raccoons and they're attracted to shiny things. Um, we carry ourselves in a in a way that uh, kind of de, de we, we get deselected for victimization. That's really what we want. Um, there's a whole layered effect to all this stuff. But when it comes to the actual confrontation, we've managed to show up at this place. We have we've been noticed. Um, the person's approaching us. We want to have some layers of defense. Um, we can verbally disengage. Um, we teach people how to do that. Um, there's layers of weapons. Uh, we teach Kubaton, which I think is a, a great, great thing for a lot of women to know how to do. Pepper spray is imperative. Um, that's going to probably solve about 99% of your potential problems. And it works on four-legged predators also. You know, you should just carry pepper spray with you anyway, you know, a dog you, attack or whatever. You know, I want to back you up completely on that. Um, with the, every hammer, you know, hammer, everything looks like a nail, and, and the four-legged critters. About two years ago, I was up at my place in Arkansas. We took a, a walk down the road. I don't know any of the neighbors yet or anything like that. And one of the neighbors happens to have this pit bull. Well, she comes out. And she means business, man. She's got the head lowered to the ground, and she doesn't attack, but she comes right up to us, and she's she's about one step away from a nine millimeter between the eyes at this point, because um, I know what these dogs can do, and I really don't want to do this, but the right hand is on the handgun at this point, but the left hand has the thumb up on the uh, the can of uh, Cold Steel Inferno, and I gave her one tiny, the tiniest squirt I could put out. I didn't even really hit it with her. Hit her with it. I put it right in front of her nose, and that was the end of that. There was yeah, there. She dog, turned dog around and anything in their face, you know. And she wasn't happy about backing off, you know. But she backed off, and she was, you know, snot coming out of the nose and all. It was a much easier conversation to go, dude. Um, I think you need to control your dog a little bit more. And she came out. She's going to bite us, and I, I hit her with a little bit of pepper spray. Then to walk up to that man's house with my dog, his dog in my arms. And go, sorry about your dog. And that's just one example, and it's a perfect example of what you've just said. Well, shooting people or animals both is terribly expensive. Um, You know, that's one of the things I try to reinforce to people all the time. Um, There's a lot of kind of romanticism about the idea of getting in a gunfight and what I'm going to do. It's not pretty, and it's not good for anybody involved. Uh, We really want to avoid it at all costs. Um, it's expensive and not only monetarily through civil suits and everything else and, you know, just the checks you write to your lawyer, um, but it's mentally and spiritually taxing. Um, you know, there, people, there are only about 2% of the population that can just kill indiscriminately and not feel bad about it, and we have a name for them. They're called psychopaths. You know, the rest of us aren't. You know, it, it is going to have a lasting effect in our life, and it'll be something we think about for the rest of our lives. So, you know, we, we don't want to do it if we don't have to. We, of course, will if we have to. But if I can pepper spray somebody who's hassling me and get to my car and get out of there, I'm all the better for it. 
I think there's some myths about pepper spray too, um, and I also think there's some level of there are people that maybe it has a less effect on than than other people. There are people that maybe stand it a little bit better, but I think that a lot of the stories that come out of law enforcement confuse uh, the non-law enforcement person because our goal's different. When an officer deploys pepper spray, it's to subdue a person and take them into custody. And that's one thing. And when we deploy it, it is so that we can extricate ourselves from the situation. Yeah, everything we do is about buying time. And that's what we're talking about when we deploy it. And you're absolutely right with that. Uh, the other issue with this is Pepper spray is for obnoxious drunks. It's not for knife-wielding maniacs. I mean, if it's all you have, <laughs> you use it. But, I got you. Uh, um, you know, it's situational. And, you know, drugs and chemicals, when they enter into this kind of stuff, um, you know, I've, I've seen plenty of police video of people being shot with pepper spray, and it's just not doing anything to them. But they're out of their mind on PCP or something. Correct. Um, I had lunch years ago with a Navy SEAL who sprayed it on a sandwich and ate it. I mean, he had a resistance to it. Um, everything that we do is going to have somebody that it doesn't affect. You know, nothing is 100%. You know, how many times have we seen people shot 20, 30 times and they still get up and, and keep fighting? And, and we don't turn around and go, well, then a gun doesn't work. So just because right. there's that right. person that the pepper spray doesn't work, we don't throw that baby out with the bathwater eater. No, absolutely not. Um, but we want to layer our defense, and you're absolutely right. If you're carrying a gun, you got to carry pepper spray. And even if you're not carrying a gun, carry pepper spray. It's, you know, just something you should have. Um, I, you know, maybe a tip for your listeners here. I uh, had a student who recommended this years ago, and I thought it was brilliant when she said this. But she said, you know, I went home with those two-ounce canisters that you gave me, and I took Velcro. And I take the one side of the Velcro on there, and I put the other side up by my door jams. And she's got two-ounce pepper sprays at each door of her house. So when she goes to answer the door, she can just grab one. Yeah, we keep a pretty good-sized can at both doors as well, and I, I think that everybody should. Um, the, the other thing that, that, uh, that I wanted to have you kind of chat a bit about, because you mentioned it kind of in passing there, is, uh, Kubaton. Because that's a very small weapon. It's legal just about anywhere you go. It can be carried on your key ring. You want to tell us a little bit more about, about that, uh, that particular um, tool? Yeah, it's, it would probably work much better, uh, visually than over the radio, but, um, Kubaton is, it's like a six inch long piece of plastic or wood, um, maybe a half inch in diameter, three quarter of inches in a diameter. Um, usually on a key ring, but not necessarily doesn't have to be. Um, there's basically only two, three moves I teach my students with it. There's all kinds of holds and pressure point things that you can do with Kubaton, but a lot of that stuff takes a long time to develop and practice like any other martial art, um, move does. Um, one of which, though, is if you've got the Kubaton, generally there's two key rings on the end of it um, linked together with the keys on the second ring. And that's to give you a little bit of a fulcrum in there, and you can hold on to the Kubaton and actually flail with the keys. Um, I find that to be terribly effective. And, you know, uh, even in practice, sometimes I'll get clipped with those things, and it, it makes me want to quit fighting. Um, the other is, is we use the end of the Kubaton, just like if you were pointing your finger, we use it in that V in the neck, where we just push into that little spot on somebody's neck, and generally, if, if they're grabbing you, they're going to let go, because it cuts their air off. Um, and we also have a wrist hold that I, I teach some of the students to use. Um, you know, somebody grabs you, gets a hold of your lapel, starts shaking you around, you can usually put them down right away with the hold. Um, and I've, I had a 12-year-old uh, girl actually throw me down the other day, and I had a mouthful of sod. It was great. She was just, you know, <laughs> took, took right to it and knew what to do. It was great. 
Um, it, it's it's a good non-lethal weapon to have with. Um, TSA has kind of caught on to these. I, I know if some people have been getting them taken away at the airport, but if you have one of the plastic ones with you, you can take it off the key ring and throw it in your briefcase or whatever, and they won't even notice. Very cool. And I think that's a great tip because I get a ton of questions from people. Jack, what do I do when I'm traveling? And I'm traveling to a state where I can't carry my gun and I've got to go on an airplane. So that would oh, be... Oh, I've got, I've got an answer for you. Okay, great. Um, last time I flew, if you go on the TSA website right now, scissors are actually allowed up to a four-inch blade. Um, when I got on the plane, I went to TSA, and the first thing I had with me was a uh, cold steel walking stick, one of the canes, just a, an oak cane. Okay. Um, according to the Americans with Disabilities Act, they can't even ask you why you have it. You set your cane on the conveyor belt, and they're going to give you a TSA-approved cane to walk through the metal detector with. So Very good. I want to say that again. They can't even ask why you have it. If they do, this is your stock answer. Sir, why do you have this? You look right at them and you go, are you discriminating against me? <laughs> okay. And then that's it. it it's All right. closed. Okay. So we've got a baseball bat with us now. Okay. Right? That's the first thing. The second is the scissors. Um, I took a four-inch pair of scissors, loosened the center screw to the point where it was almost apart, but not quite. Then when I got on the plane, I finished it off, and I had a, a blade for each hand. So you can carry scissors on a plane now because as of today, I mean, you know, they change the rules all the time. Okay. Um, But yeah, scissors are legal, Um, and a flashlight. Um, You know, getting a really nice uh, 120 lumen, 140 or higher lumen, uh, you know, strobing flashlight, something that you can actually blind people with. Um, It's another less lethal weapon that I I really recommend everybody have at all times. Um, So scissors. I've got a cane. Uh, my flashlight, I put an Israeli battle dressing in my pocket. I sat down next to my training partner. I looked at him and said, you know, it would be nice to have my gun right now, but I really think you and I can handle anything that happens on this plane. And he went, yeah, no problem. You know, so you, you can you can improvise. Um, one of the other things you can carry on a plane that nobody's really thinking about is some sort of garage. Um, you know, any piece of rope with a couple of carabiners tied to the end of it, um, they're not even going to look at it twice. And what would you do with that? How would you use that as a tool? Well, garrots are, you know, like a strangulation device. Absolutely. Um, you know, if if somebody grabs hold of a stewardess or something, their back's to you, you can get up around their head really. You know, I, that's something we teach in our advanced classes and that sort of stuff. It, it's it's more visual. I, I don't know exactly how to describe it over the radio, but the point being that there, we have options. There are some things we can do, and, and unless they get to the point where they strip everybody naked and hit them with some sort of sedative and strap them into a seat before they load them on the plane, which I shouldn't give them any ideas, uh, there's going to be something on that plane you can use. Yeah, you see, yeah that's going to be next. Welcome to Delta Flight 1793. Right. Please this lean back in your this. seat while the needle injects your neck. But that's that's what's going to happen at check-in. And yeah. The seats are going to be on a conveyor belt to get loaded into the plane. Yeah. yeah. When you when you wake up, you'll be in Atlanta. It's uh, not going to stop you from sewing a bomb into your body. Yeah. I, yeah. It, 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 this is all showbiz. I, the airport security is just a joke, but you know, totally different different topic. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, it, I mean, real quick, I had a guy on Facebook the other day say that he was flying through and they're doing that thing with swabbing your hands for explosives now. Mm-hmm. And he's like, what if I was out, you know, the last day or two shooting at the range and I had a uh, gun? Yeah, it happened. Yeah. 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 You know, and they said, well, you'd be detained until we figure out what to do with you. A friend uh, a couple years ago uh, went out shooting one afternoon, came home, packed her bag to 
leave for, uh, I don't know where she was going the next day, but when she got to the airport, because she had loaded or, or packed her bag with her hands before washing them after being at the range, they came up positive for explosives. Um, you know, they, they searched it and everything there, but then they put a little red tag in it that says, you know, came positive. So when her bag came out on the other end, the zipper was destroyed and they'd ripped it to shreds, you know. Oh, great. You know, it's... Uh, well, <laughs> let's not go down that road because we'll be another hour just uh, yeah, yeah, random raving there. Dollars at work. There yeah, um, I do want to, you know, folks. You can find Frank's banner on the Survival Podcast, but you want to tell folks a little bit more about your school as we're getting ready to wrap up here and the different courses they can take because they can take pistol training, rifle training, all sure, kinds of sure. good stuff. Um, what what we we do specifically probably that would be of interest to your audience is we we travel the country. Um, if you have a group or a family you know together that wants to get some training, we will train you as a group and customize it to what your needs are. Um, I some people look at that and go, well, I mean, what what's going to be different from going to gun site? The difference is we save you di- uh, days and travel time. Um, you know if you we're probably going to be priced a little less than most of the big schools. Um, you know, it's not going to be a huge saving in money, but it's going to save you a lot in time because you don't have to spend the three days driving cross-country to Thunder Ranch or wherever it is because you don't want to ship your guns. Uh, we also bring our targeting systems with you. We use moving targets, uh, three-dimensional. We can incorporate a class to be everything from basic pistol safety to vehicle defense. Um, depending on the amount of days you want us there, we'll we'll work with you and work all that out. Awesome. And uh, and what type of courses you, you know, kind of your standard courses do you have? You got the handgun courses. You've got handgun, uh, handgun, um, any type of urban rifle course, which is generally targets from 100 yards in. And it's just kind of a generic term, urban rifle. But I mean, it works in the country too. Uh, we do our tactical medical. Um, we offer executive protection classes for people who are in- interested in going into that field. Um, we do our force-on-force training, um, the medical stuff, and we also have a long-range rifle course, which uh, one of our instructors right now holds the world record with the Barrett M82, and we have a marine sniper who has some Afghan or uh, I'm sorry, some Iraq experience from the past few years? Who is teaching that with them? So you know, if somebody has long range rifle, they want to learn how to hit targets out to a thousand yards. We can get those two guys out to you also. Very very cool. Um, and uh, again, I kind of just want to you know, we kind of got to a point here where we're going to wrap things up. But do you have any final thoughts for people just on? You know, the importance of training in general, I guess, is I want people to really understand that I, I see so many people that are worried about what that next gun is, and maybe they have a, a, a cabinet full or a safe full of guns, and they've never had a single training course. Yeah. Um, the, again, there's something about living in America that we think we can buy our way out of problems. Um, all I can say is there's nothing you can buy and bolt or glue to a gun that is going to align your sights for you and pressure trigger. That skill comes out of hard work. We have to get on the range, we have to put rounds down range, and we have to do it correctly over and over and over again to do it right. Um, yeah, you know, you, I'm sure you've seen this. All the forums, all the the internet stuff that's out there. One of the biggest arguments in the world out there is nine millimeter versus forty five. It's my pet peeve of all things. Um, I would tell your listening audience that all handgun rounds suck. 
Okay, they they just do. They're not rifle rounds. They don't do what rifles do. And all handguns, I haven't heard of one yet that can guarantee a one-shot stop. So why are we spending this time arguing about this caliber choice versus going out and training with our guns and learning how to really make proper hits? And that's because how do you describe doing that over the Internet? You know, we, we can argue about 9mm and 45, and that's like arguing about sports. It just doesn't matter. Um, but it's entertaining on the net. Um, to actually go out to the range all day and put in the real time doing real training, eh, that's not so glamorous. Um, and it's not something that you can describe very well. So, you know, I would I would really advise people, if you've got a safe full of guns or you're, you know, trying to contemplate what next you're going to bolt onto your rail system, your AR-15, whether that's a toaster or a sock warmer or whatever the new <laughs> fad is, um, I would really caution against it. And go get some training. And if it's not with us, that's fine. There are there's a hundred schools in this country that will that will get you up to speed, and and every one of them has something to teach you. Um, myself and my instructors were consummate students. We actually take classes every year too. Um, and that's not just to learn new stuff for our own benefit. It's actually to steal stuff to bring to you also. Um, you know, it's an evolving art, and all of us steal from each other. That's a pretty small community, and most of us know each other. And uh, it's. If anybody says that they came up with an original idea in this business, they really haven't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do want to get you. I said that was the last word, but there's one more thing because you, you you made me think of there. I, I tell people this all the time. The reason I train with a handgun and I carry with a handgun is because there are places that I have to go that that's the best that I can do. Right. And that if you come and break in my house in the middle of the night, I'm not likely to reach out and grab my 45 and, and come down and look for you. You're probably going to end up staring down the barrel of a 20 gauge shotgun with number four buck. And, yeah. and you could, you could, it could be a, an AR carbine or it could be anything, but it, handguns are what we carry because we have no other choice in my view, not because they're the best thing for a fight. Right. They're better than a pointed stick. That's that's what it comes down to. Um, in, a, in a house, if that point sticks a, is a is a katana and you're trained with it, it might be better off with the katana. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all situational and it, and it has to fit the person also. Um, you know, my my 82 year old grandmother has a 38 revolver in a safe next to her bed. That's you know in one of the little gun vaults. That's what fits her life and what she's comfortable with. Um, on the other hand, my mom, uh, before she passed away, she had a Glock 9mm next to her bed. That's what she preferred. Um, I have a 12-gauge next to my bed. But in my truck, I have a rifle, and what I carry every day is a pistol. Um, you know, we have these situations and these times where certain things fit. Um, I would say this, though. If you have one gun and you know how to use it, you're better off by a million than the person who has a safe full of guns and has never had training. I completely agree. There's, uh, I don't know if he originated, but I remember the first time I ever heard it, and it was, had nothing to do with self-defense. It was with hunting, and it was in a book called uh, Use Enough Gun by a writer named Robert Rourke, who wrote, wrote a lot about Africa right after World War II. And that was uh, Harry Selby, I think, was the professional hunter, and that was what he said, beware the man that carries one gun. And I think there is some wisdom there. But I'm with you on the, the handgun thing. It is it is the best we can do under the given circumstances because I'm going to attract a lot of attention walking down the street with an AR on my back and yeah, I, I as much can't as I would like that. to yeah you know, if, if I had my choice of what to leave the house with I'd probably have an FAL and 40 friends with FALs but you know, <laughs> we, don't, we don't get to choose that and um, you know, 40 trained friends 
Yeah, yeah, 40 train friends. <laughs> um, and I'd also like to have the ability to call in an airstrike, and I wish rainwater was beer and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it, you know, it, just, it doesn't doesn't work that way. Um, you know, we have, these fights are always comes you are affairs, and you have what you have, and you have to make do, do with it. Um, which is one of the reasons, again, how we started this thing. I really would caution people against having a favorite gun. I would learn how to use as many different ones as possible. Because the next gun in your next gunplay may be the one that just comes sliding across the barroom floor, and you got to pick it up and use it. Absolutely, absolutely. The worst thing in the world is somebody you see pick up a gun and they go, "Ew, I can't use that." <laughs> you know, come on, where's my pressure switch? I mean, come on, the trigger pull on this thing's terrible. You know, while some guy's trying to club you with a bar stool. Yeah, it's, it's sorry that that you know he doesn't <laughs> care about your problems. <laughs> Um, so, you know, get in there and fight and learn how to do this. And uh, we do that through training. That, that's how that, that gets uh, exercised. Well, wise words there, Frank. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Jack. Thank you. And with that, folks, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Frank Sharp of Fortress Self-Defense, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Revolution is you.